This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, believe it or not, it's been five years since the passage of the Affordable Care Act. So much has changed in just a few short years. And the numbers tell much of the story. Since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, more than 16 million Americans have gained coverage through the insurance marketplaces, through Medicaid expansion, and the number of uninsured Americans is at its lowest rate in years. And let's look at some of the other numbers that don't get discussed as much. Roughly 75 million Americans have since gained access to preventive care and screenings at no cost to them. 30 million Americans under the age of 65 cannot be denied coverage due to a pre-existing condition, and 105 million Americans no longer face a lifetime living on health coverage. And it doesn't mean that the law doesn't continue to be controversial and politically divisive. The GOP leadership in Congress still attempting to repeal the law, but it is gaining in popularity among the American people, with 70 percent of Americans who would prefer some kind of repair versus repeal measure, and a majority of Americans polled supporting the tax subsidies to offset the cost of purchasing insurance under the health care law. Things can always be made better, but there are some significant changes that have happened in the era of health reform. About 80 percent of the nation's hospitals have switched to electronic health records, as well as about 50 percent of the nation's practices, leaving paper records well behind. And that represents a huge shift in the way healthcare practices are being run. Well, that transition's actually gone more rapidly than I would have thought. But we want to note, too, that while the transition to electronic health records and expanded health IT operations has been tough for many practices, no one disagrees that it paves the way for better data collection and better access to health data for healthcare consumers and researchers as we move forward. That's something our guest today knows quite a bit about. Dr. Rajiv Bhatia is the former director of occupational and environmental health for the city of San Francisco and created many innovative health impact assessment tools that utilize data to improve the health of the entire community. He's since taken his model nationally, having founded the Civic Engine, which helps municipalities strengthen the economic foundations of their health in their communities. And Lori Robertson, the managing editor of factcheck.org, stops by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. And we'll get to our interview with Dr. Rajiv Bhatia in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. It's crunch time for the so-called doc fix, and in a rare show these days, there's a bipartisan effort underway to repair the outdated and dysfunctional system for reimbursing physicians who treat Medicare patients. The House likely to vote on the plan to scrap the old Medicare reimbursement formula before the March 31st deadline, which is when the scheduled 21% drop in reimbursements goes into effect. According to a summary of the $200 billion deal, the current system would be scrapped and replaced with payment increases for doctors for the next five years as Medicare transitions to a new system focused more on quality and accountability. For doctors, the package offers an end to the familiar right, but frustrating as well of lawmakers having to re-up the funding year after year. But the deferrals have always been temporary because Congress couldn't agree on how to pay for the permanent fix. 
The American Medical Association urged Congress to enact these changes and seize the moment while it's here. A total of 16.4 million non-elderly adults have gained health insurance since the Affordable Care Act became law five years ago this month. An historic reduction in the number of uninsured, according to the Department of Health and Human Services. Those gaining insurance since 2010 include 2.3 million young adults aged 18 to 26, able to remain on their parents' health insurance, plus another 14.1 million adults who obtain coverage through expansions of Medicaid, new marketplace coverage, and other sources. Officials say the percentage of people without coverage has dropped by about a third, from 20.3% to 13.2% in the first quarter of 2015. And finding a good night's rest in the hospital seems next to impossible for many. The sounds throughout the night, the medical tests in the middle of the night, uncomfortable surroundings and the like. Well, a study in China showed a few inexpensive interventions could do the trick in improving sleep greatly. A natural sleep aid, melatonin, an eye mask, and earplugs greatly improved time sleeping for most patients in the study. Turns out all three help, but that melatonin had the most significant impact, helping patients get the best out of a night's sleep. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Rajiv Bhatia, founder and director of the Civic Engine, the providing civic leaders with strategies to strengthen the economic foundations of health in their communities. An internist, data scientist, and social medicine practitioner, Dr. Bhatia was director of occupational and environmental health for San Francisco's Department of Public Health, where he created the program on health equity and sustainability. He co-founded the nonprofit organization Human Impact Partners and has also served as senior advisor to the National Center for Healthy Housing as well as advisor to the World Health Organization. Dr. Bhatti has earned several awards, including the Homer Calver Award from the American Public Health Association. He earned his master's in public health at UC Berkeley and his medical degree at Stanford and now I served on the clinical faculty of the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Bellatia, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me on the program. You have had a great perch uh, during your 17-year tenure at uh, as the Director of Occupational Environmental Health for the San Francisco Department of Health, where you saw firsthand the correlation between urban environments and health outcomes. And during that time, you saw the need to expand the development of data points uh, to be gathered to ensure public health, creating a system that hadn't existed before. And you, you learned what a vital tool open data can be in facilitating urban development decisions that can actually improve public health by fostering more transparency. And could you start off by telling our listeners what led you to look at public health issues from this new perspective? Well, it wasn't always, but now there's a universal consensus that the factors most important for protecting health and for managing chronic diseases aren't the things that healthcare systems provide. They're basic human needs like financial self-sufficiency, education, safe neighborhoods, and a supportive network of friends and family. When these basic needs aren't met, people don't have the resources they need for healthy living. If people are struggling to pay the rent or put food on the table or go to work or school, they're going to be very hard-pressed to prioritize prevention. After my residency, I worked at a clinic where I saw homeless patients. Patients came in with cold symptoms asking for a prescription for housing. I had patients with asthma who were living in rundown housing that didn't feel secure enough to complain about their landlord. 
So we were taking care of problems that could be prevented. And as a doctor, I didn't have the tools to help my patients. When I joined the health department, I saw the same thing, but at the neighborhood scale. What I saw was community residents and organizations doing the work needed for public health. But at the time, they had a little meaningful support from the public health department. Well, Dr. Batia, your insight is uh, exactly the it seems simple but profound insight that is finally dawning on most of the American healthcare system. And yet, I think we often think of areas like San Francisco as an exception, perhaps, to the rule that there's a level of affluence that perhaps uh, mitigates against the social determinants of health. You found the food insecurity, the housing issues, wage insecurity. Tell us, as you began to identify them, what about that experience led you to focus on new areas of data collection in your assessment of these public health issues? Well, every city has poverty, and I think that, that poverty is often hidden in the wealthiest cities. When I started my public health work in the late 1990s, and that was a bit ago, some neighborhoods like Bayview Hunters Point were isolated from job opportunities, had poor transportation, lacked basic neighborhood services like banks and supermarkets. Other San Francisco neighborhoods were a bit more stable, but working class jobs were evaporating and residents were being priced out. The gentrification threats were real and stressful. For some families, the only affordable housing option was living in a single-room occupancy hotel. So here we can have an entire family living in an 8-by-10-foot room without a bathroom or kitchen, with poor ventilation. They're fundamentally illegal in substandard occupancies, but the city tolerates it because they don't provide any other option. San Francisco has one of the highest rates of pedestrian injuries in the country. Many people walk, but the streets and intersections are really designed for the safety and convenience of cars. And in San Francisco, it wasn't a question of money or resources, but rather a question of priority or political will. Most health departments don't have a real role or power or authority to deal with these problems, but most people do care about health. So we thought if we could inform the debate, we might be able to generate accountability to the needs of health. And that's what led to the idea of measuring health at the neighborhood level holistically. The health department and the collaboration of community organizations decided simply to measure what people wanted and needed to be healthy in every neighborhood. We wanted to do that in a way that informed policy debates and held city agencies accountable to health needs. You know, I'm quite excited about the development of your health impact assessment tool because it really connects the dots at the neighborhood level. It's a new frame of reference, I think, for residents in a community. But it also requires sort of a new change of thinking by the leadership. And you sort of talked about the, the lack of, of political will that might exist in communities. So, and obviously, your initiative created some friction amongst some of the old guard. So talk about that intersection uh, between coming up with a new framework of thinking and how one is going to have to deal with the challenges of the old guard and on the other hand, sort of the acceptance that this and the resonance that this has in the neighborhoods. So you're exactly right. I mean, health impact assessment was powerful and it kind of carried forward because it had a really simple common sense premise. Decision makers should be informed about the health consequences of decisions. But as common sense as that idea was 15 years ago, it wasn't really happening. It resonated with community members because we, because we were dealing with we were now talking about their real needs, and we were talking about them holistically. We weren't chopping them up and dealing with them in the siloed way that governments normally dealt with them. But adding health to decisions outside the healthcare sector upset the calculus. Decision makers now have to consider a new issue. The existing stakeholders who have power have to share the decision-making table. 
So it's disruptive. You know, at times the data was embarrassing to agencies in the city, like when we showed that having economically segregated lunch lines created stigma and reduced school lunch participation. Huh. Uh, the ideas are, and data wasn't really challenged. It was just embarrassing. Mm-hmm. You know, other times it forced greater responsibility, like when we demonstrated that 5% of the city streets accounted for 55% of the serious and fatal injuries. That, that caused change in the way the cities operate. The planning and transportation agencies eventually adopted the metrics and used them to target investments, wet parks, and traffic calming. The land use developers even accepted and welcomed the new data-driven health regulations to protect um, buildings and health. I know that one area that was of particular interest to you was the issue of wage and income security. And uh, I'm always a big fan of people who take whatever position they have and use it to uh, the greatest uh, effectiveness or good they can. And I understand that you developed an innovative strategy in environmental health, which includes, uh, of course, the purview of conducting restaurant inspections to help ensure that workers were not only safe, but they were also uh, safe economically in terms of earning their fair wage. Uh, Tell us more about that. What were you able to accomplish with that approach? I've cared about income and and financial self-sufficiency probably more than any other single issue. I mean, it's just so fundamental. Like a a diabetic who can't afford fresh fruits and vegetables, who doesn't have the time to cook because she's working multiple minimum wage jobs, is going to have a really hard time managing diabetes. And so I used health impact assessments to support a number of wage campaigns uh, over the years for minimum wage increases, labor rights for domestic workers, and the first paid sick days law in the country. Bringing a health frame uh, to these policy debates was really powerful in changing the political conversation. I can't say we were the sole cause of these laws passing, but um, I, think we, I think we may have helped. But the labor rules need somebody to, to be credible enforcers, too. In 2008, worker organizations in San Francisco's Chinatown came to us with the problem of wage theft. A minority of employers underpay workers. Immigrant workers are the most vulnerable to this kind of abuse. In San Francisco, it turns out, restaurants were one of the most common offenders. The advocates asked us, since we inspected and permitted the restaurants, could we do something to take action against the bad actors? So we did a few things. We had inspectors monitor the employee notifications and reinforce the city's new sick plate rules. We also threatened to revoke the permits of the restaurants that were involved in wage theft. By sanctioning restaurants who were violators, we were able to get the restaurants to pay back wages and penalties more quickly. And we sent a strong message that our inspectors were watching and willing to act on labor violations. We're speaking today with Dr. Rajiv Bhatia, founder and director of the Civic Engine, dedicated to providing civic leaders with strategies to strengthen the foundations of health in their communities. An internist, data scientist, and social medicine practitioner, Dr. Bhatia was director of occupational and environmental health for the San Francisco Department of Public Health, where he created the program on health equity and sustainability. Dr. Bhatti, as you've noted, open data is the key to generating public health improvements. You know, that so much reminds me on the national level of the work of Todd Park, who's really been on the show talking about liberation of data, and also sort of at the local level, the sort of whole initiative of uh, social hackathons. Um, But it, it is also essential in determining the best practices moving forward. Tell us 
about more compelling data that you've collected during your tenure in San Francisco and uh, data around land use. You've talked a little bit about that uh, population displacement, improved income. How effective were these programs in truly protecting the public's health and how replicable? And I think this is an important one for our listeners. Is this approach in other parts of the country? Is this something that they can carry forward to their local health department and, and work with people on? It's definitely more replicable, and it's easy, becoming easier and easier to sort of generate and share and use data. So let me give you a few sort of very specific examples, and I, and I think that um, they, they reflect some of the qualities of data that make, make them powerful. So in San, in San Francisco, like most cities, we monitor the air pollution really at one point in the city, and we let that point speak to the air quality exposures of the entire city. But nobody breathes that average level of air pollution. So using some computer tools, we were able to show that there were particular locations, particular buildings, particular streets, particular neighborhoods, where we're actually violating the air quality standards. And in 2008, this data led to a new city law requiring buildings in these hotspots to have better ventilation systems that clean that pollution. I mentioned that pedestrian hotspot data that showed 55% of the serious and fatal injuries happen on 5% of the street miles. So what this shifted was the way the city managed traffic calming and police enforcement. Before that data, the police weren't targeting enforcement efforts to the high-injury locations. The map changed the focus. The police department and the city's traffic calming programs agreed to dedicate more of their re- more almost most of their resources to these to these hot spots of pedestrian injuries. Data doesn't change the world by itself. It takes people using it. Data and science can support um, good arguments to make healthy change in cities. So neighborhood advocates were the ones really able to use the data on disparities in parks and schools and other infrastructure to win concessions from developers for community-directed investment funds and for more permanently affordable housing. I think we were very successful in using data to change the rules in the game, and now we're seeing some of the changes in the urban environment in San Francisco. But to be honest, it's going to take some time to see the results in terms of better health. It takes, you know, that takes generations, and it's, it's very hard to attribute health improvements to any single factor. Dr. Bazzi, you've made an eloquent case in the past that true democracy is a prerequisite for good health. And we certainly see that reality played out in the world of community health centers where boards are comprised of community representatives where uh, no one is turned away for lack of ability to pay, and, and there are rules and policies in place to ensure access. It's really where a lot of the rubber meets the road in terms of targeting health disparities and improving population health. And also, certainly, we uh, have seen community health centers increasingly be centers of advocacy and innovation in public health. Can you speak to that reality and how it applies to the work that you're doing now? How, how do you stimulate this advocacy at the level of the community? Well, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for communities' health centers to bring political attention to non-medical problems. They're there on the front lines. They're seeing these problems show up in symptoms and disease in their patients. They're trying their best to help with it, with limited resources. But but the health centers aren't the problem, and the health care system isn't the problem. We need to we need to sort of change the uh, the policies and the structures that are are leading to the to the lack of good housing, low-wage jobs, uh, you know, or, or unsafe neighborhoods. It's important for policymakers to hear what failures are happening um, 
because, you know, in other sectors, in the housing sector, in the food sector, and, and how they're costing health care. Doctors and health professionals can be very credible communicators of that perspective. And I think that political translation really needs support. The community health centers are not trained and skilled in that political translation. Um, and that's something I'd really like to help uh, um, work on in, in the next phase of my career. Dr. Bhatia, I have a two-part question. First, I want our listeners to know more about the Civic Engine, which is uh, your effort to extend and scale up the practices you applied in San Francisco to a national level through partnerships uh, with public and private organizations, and love to hear about those, those partnerships. The second part is really about... Uh, uh, how have the recent advances in technology allowed you to scale up the goals behind health impact assessment and other tools, and where are they being deployed across the country? Yeah, so getting when, when we created a San Francisco indicator system, we had to get data from individual offices and individual city agencies, and it was slow and painful. The open data movement has championed making public data shareable. Now, businesses in the public are expecting cities to make all of their data, findable, accessible, and legible. And companies have emerged to, to facilitate this process. Other companies, like Trulia and Zillow, are functioning as public data retailers. What all this means, I think, is that very soon, all of those measures that we use to measure health in San Francisco and, and more are going to be easily accessed and computed for every neighborhood in the country. Many cities uh, are, already, are already sort of applying neighborhood indicators locally Every city has its own way of doing things, its own methodology, and, and there could be real power in a common language and a measurement system. The next step, I think, is developing a consensus on what are the top neighborhood measures of health. What should we use countrywide to assess community health? There's a project being funded by the Department of, of Housing and Urban Development right now, which I've been supporting, to develop and test the core set of neighborhood health indicators. It's called the Healthy Community Index. Um, and it's built from national open data resources, uh, EPA resources, census resources, um, and local open data resources that uh, we think are fairly uh, uh, uniform across the country. Minneapolis, San Diego, Albuquerque, and Providence are trying this uh, right now. And, and having these measures are going to support aligning our public investments with health. But I think that if we can get to a uniform uh, number uh, of these priority measures, it, it would really make a difference. Hmm. So an example of the work I'm doing, uh, I think, um, trying to take us to the next level is with the National Center for Healthy Housing and the, and the firm Socrata, where we've proposed a national dashboard to measure how well cities are enforcing housing codes. As you know, a lot of people in live in, in substandard housing, and, and that's affecting their health. We've written an open data standard to make each city's inspection data interpretable in the same terms, and we're asking cities to report their inspection data following this format. Once that's there, we can have a, we, we can have a dashboard that measures the frequency of common housing problems, the timeliness of the response. It'll force greater responsibility not only on landlords but also on government agencies to, you know, attend to this problem. It's going to show how housing safety might vary from neighborhood to neighborhood and what some of the environmental factors behind poor quality housing are. Um, we think this kind of dashboard is going to provide the insights and evidence needed to regulators and others and, and, policy and advocates and policymakers to improve housing conditions. So that's an example, and I think there, there are other examples on the, uh, uh, the website. What I'd like to see most 
is the data on health claims, costs, and outcomes connected to economic and social factors hmm. at the individual level. How much of what we spend on health care today is due to factors like food insecurity, overwork, and exposure to violence? We actually know these factors affect health, but we mm-hmm. don't have an answer to the question of how much we're spending in the health care uh-huh. system to treat these correctable problems. So what it would take to get there is that health care systems would have to routinely assess these non-medical risk factors just like they do smoking and blood pressure. And then we need to make the identified data on both outcomes and risks available to researchers. But if as we suspect, substantial and avoidable health costs are due to unmet needs, then the policies and programs to increase financial security and increase affordable housing have added value as cost-saving health strategies. And some legislators might decide to shift some of the resources that they're using to treat the symptoms to the upstream solutions. We've been speaking today with Dr. Rajiv Bhatia, founder and director of the Civic Engine, dedicated to providing civic leaders with strategies to strengthen the economic foundations of health in their communities. You can learn more about his work by going to civicengine.org. Dr. Bhatia, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you very much for having me. Conversations on healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? In early March, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in King versus Burwell, a case that could lead to the loss of Affordable Care Act insurance subsidies in many states. We've seen several numbers being used for how many would lose subsidies and how many could become uninsured. What's the best estimate? Two independent analyses put the number who could become uninsured at $8 million. In the case, the plaintiffs argue that the language in the ACA stipulates that insurance subsidies should only be available in states that set up their own exchanges, not states that rely on the federally run healthcare.gov. The government argues that the law as a whole makes clear subsidies should be available whether there's a state or federal exchange. Most states, 34 of them, do use the federally run exchange. In those states, 7.5 million people qualified for subsidies in the latest open enrollment period. That number could change as some folks don't pay their premiums or others sign up during a tax season special enrollment period. But the number who could lose subsidies isn't the same as the number who could become uninsured. Some would still keep insurance without a subsidy, particularly those who most need coverage for health conditions. But as the risk pool for those insurance markets changed considerably, others who didn't get subsidies would see their premiums go up, making them unaffordable. So how many could become uninsured? The Urban Institute estimates that 8.2 million would become uninsured in 2016 if the court rules in favor of the plaintiffs. And the RAND Corporation puts the number at 8 million for this year. These are, of course, only estimates, and they're based on the 34 states with federally run marketplaces not taking action to set up their own exchanges. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. It's no secret that baby boomers are aging in large numbers, and that means that those suffering from age-related dementia are on the rise as well. Daniel Cohen has devised a tool that is improving the experience for these patients whose quality of life declines along with the loss of brain function. He wondered, what will happen if you provide iPods for patients in nursing homes that are loaded with their own personal playlist of the songs they loved when they were younger? In his first pilot program called Music and Memory, patients in a nursing home were given the iPods with their own personalized song list, and the results instantly noticeable. Patients went from being non-communicative and disengaged to being animated and engaged. Patients like Henry, featured in this documentary on the program called Alive Inside. Do you like music? Yeah, I'm crazy about music. What was your favorite music when you were young? I guess uh, Cab Calloway was my number one band guy I liked. I'll be for Christmas. You can come Cohen explains one of the theories as to why this program works so well. Because our memories of music are co-located in the brain with our autobiographical memories, when you play a song that's familiar, you're kicking off memories that you had. The results from the Music and Memory program were so impressive that Cohen's personalized iPod program is now being used in 50 nursing homes throughout North America. We've done some research and the feedback from the front line, from the nursing homes and from the staff, is that their ability to provide care is facilitated. And so that allows them to get their job done, to pay attention to all the residents as much as possible. A simple, personalized application for a readily available piece of technology that could dramatically impact the quality of dementia patients' lives? Oh, that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcasts from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.